Sup, everybody. Welcome to episode two of Taking Stop, Stock, Jeez. Taking Stonks with Jeff and Mikey. I'm Mikey. Stonks. I'm Coach Jeff. Stonks. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about longevity in esports communities. How to keep your game from dying, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I guess that is the negative way to put it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a really strong opinion about saying that a game is dead. I've always thought that that discussion, like, sure, in some cases, it's absolutely true. Like, there are some games you don't see people playing anymore. Right. But talking about it can't possibly help. I think that if you talk about whether a game is dead or not, you either have malicious intent and want the game to die or <laughs> you are not doing what's in the best interest yeah. of yourself and your community. Yeah, you're feeding into the perception that something is, you know, inherently right. as wrong soon as with you what's hear happening. Name of game and dead in the same sentence. Someone's going to draw the wrong conclusion, whether you meant it or not. Right. And so I am going to at least not mention anything about a game dying per se. I'm just going to talk about um, what should your goals be as a community and what are some things that you'll want to accomplish if you want to achieve the kind of longevity that some games enjoy and others don't. Right. Um, so with that pedantic quibble out of the way, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, one thing that I think we should start with, because this is really ground level and really basic, but is it's the question, why do you want your community to last forever? Why would you want that? What are what are some goals that you have if you have that in mind? That, that sounds really like obvious, but I think yeah. that that'll lead us to some deeper questions. Now, are so you are you asking this? Are you asking this from a developer standpoint or from like That's a community a very member question. standpoint? I say we start from community and then move to developer. Okay. Let's start with what we can control and then let's talk about what outside factors we might have a little bit of influence over that we might want to talk about as well. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. So wh why do you think a player would want their community to continue indefinitely? Why, why do you want... Uh, why do you think some people want to be playing Super Smash Brothers Melee in their nursing homes when they get old? <laughs> uh, I think it's good to think about the idea of, you know, I've made friends through playing this game and it's it's done a whole lot for me as a person in terms of my uh, not only personal development, but obviously professional development, since right now talking about it is part of my job. So... Uh, that experience for me has been, you know, just an absolute positive in my life. And I can't to put it in reverse. I can't think of a reason why I would want that to go away. I might not want to engage directly with it as much in certain times, just depending on, you know, where I'm at in my life, how much stuff I've got going on. But I can't think of a reason why I wouldn't want that to be there for me as an option. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, the, you know, the, the friends in the community are a big part of it. Um, and the thing is, like, I feel like a community, a group of friends, like a community can collectively move on from one thing to the next. I yeah, that's where I'm coming from here. Um, so, for example, a lot of games have sequels. And if your primary motivation 
in that game continuing is just to keep that group of people together and keep that same environment. In that case, it can be acceptable for your individual game to go away as long as everybody is actually transitioning onto the sequel, you know? Yeah. So like Smash 4 was a community of people that largely just moved on to Ultimate. Jump ship, Um, right? Yeah. And that's a situation where if it wasn't so much the game and it was the community, as I think it was for a lot of those players, I think that that's a healthy thing to move on to the sequel. Um, that ties into our developer conversation as well and what our relationship with them should be. Right. Um, but I individually also think that I would want a, a community. I would want a community that sticks around because they're enthusiastic for the game. Um, I, this is my melee speaking 100%. There's, a, there's definitely a pro melee right. bias here. No question about it. Um, but I stuck with Melee first because I loved the game and then because I loved the community. And I know it's it's different for other people, but I think that the love of the game itself, its depth and the beauty of its mechanics, um, when you can bond with someone over that, you can create community with people that you don't even know yet. Um, I, I think that... If I were to try and get a Smash 4 club together right now, I would have a really hard time doing that because there aren't as many people that are playing that anymore. Um, And so I think that one of the reasons that I might want an individual game to last forever is so that there's always that draw that will always be pulling new people in rather than having just, well, we're, we're basically here for the culture. And we'll move on to whatever it is next. Well, what if I don't like what's next? You know, what if I don't want to spend so much time learning what comes next that I I'm not really a part of the community anymore because I haven't learned the basics. I do think that's there's something so anomalous about Melee in this space. Like there is nothing like it. You know, I I can't think of a single game where. You know, I I think there's kind of a sliding scale here, right? And for me, the sliding scale goes, if we're just talking about fighting games, it goes from like Marvel versus Capcom to Tekken, let's say. I think Marvel versus Capcom is like sequel comes out and the whole series as a competitive game, again, hate to say dies, but like all of the legacy tournaments for it just like stopped having the game there. It essentially got replaced by Dragon Ball Fighters, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the community, uh, you know, dropped Marvel versus Capcom Infinite, which is not an old game, right? Let me let me look up when it came out. That is pretty recent. I want to say like 2018. 2017, so late 2017. Late 2017. And the thing is that most of the esports titles that are, you know, the big heavy hitters that you think of, aside from like Fortnite, Call of Duty, they all came out earlier than that, right? They all came out 2016 or earlier. And I'm talking about Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Obviously, that's an esport that has a legacy that goes back like really far. Even Fortnite is 2017. Right. Yeah. And Fortnite Fortnite is around the same time, Mm -hmm. you know? And like it's just in the blink of an eye almost in terms of esports, like just been dropped from from everything that mattered to it. 
So that I think is the most like catastrophic contemporary example that we have for a sequel coming out and your game just, you know, losing all of its vitality, essentially. Then you have Street Fighter. Uh, well, actually, I put Melee, Melee, obviously, before Street Fighter, because it's not only that you don't like the new games, it's that you like them so much less than the old game that you just continue to play the old game, uh, which I think is is kind of unprecedented. <laughs> I, I can't think of another esports title where that is the case, where like you could make an argument for a long time that Melee was actually bigger than the current game. I would argue that until Smash 4 came out, it was 100% bigger. Like th there was maybe the month or two after Brawl came out. And then after that point, I think Melee was just a bigger community. Yeah, at that point. it's like a it's like a six or seven year period where mm -hmm. the old game is more popular than the new game. And it's not like Melee is going away anytime soon. You know, people will mm -hmm. talk about like the the diminished numbers, but it's not like it's it's withering with, you know, not being able to attract people for major tournaments like you can still mm -hmm. get a thousand people at a melee tournament. It doesn't have the downward momentum that a lot of titles that quote unquote die have like um, Marvel versus Capcom Infinite, <laughs> like right? Fewer people can play melee and it will not deter people from playing melee. Yeah, um, I think. I look at the example, especially of Street Fighter uh, between Street Fighter four and Street Fighter five. And I, I think like, man, I feel for those people because yeah. Street Fighter four, that was a game that had a, a competitive life ahead of it. it. People were still playing it. And then as soon as Street Fighter five comes out, everyone switches. But people didn't like Street Fighter five as much. The, mechanically speaking, um, I believe it was very defensive focused um, that they're it just got kind of campy and lame. Um, and a lot of, you know, top players were very vocal about it, but they kept playing the game. And right. So th this, this will kind of boil, come back up when we talk about grassroots versus esports mentality. Um, and what we'll define what those terms mean in a second, I'm sure. But the, my my thesis here is, is there not a time and place where even with a, a, a title with a lot of developer support like Street Fighter, where the players should insist on playing the version of the game they like rather than the version that's out. Um, I think that there's a lot that goes into that de decision. I think that Melee is very anomalous. I think that, you know, it's a pretty extreme choice to make. But in terms of the competitive lifespan of the eSport, if that's what you care about, that it might be a step that you want to consider. Um, right. So talk about, wow, we've talked about uh, the next bullet point without me having to even bring it up. Ha ha. I'm so good at outlining things. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing that I think is an important metric that we've already kind of referred to a couple of times is the number of players who are actively playing the game. That is, they're the ones who are showing up to tournaments on a regular basis. They're the ones who are your viewers, your um, your content audience. They're, you know, everything, the lifeblood of the community. I think that it's an important, the most important metric in terms of... Um, with how well your game is doing is not necessarily the number of players, the sheer number of players, but I would say it's the growth of that number of players. I would say like if the, your numbers are increasing over time, that that can never be a bad thing, that that's never a bad sign. Sure. Um, and that it's once those numbers start decreasing, that's when um, 
the game might be having problems and might be heading towards some unfortunate event. Because, um, and this will also come up when we get into grassroots versus esports. Maybe we should have that conversation earlier than I than I planned for it. But I think that um, you can get a really big spike in the number of players in that player base if you have a decent game and a lot of money to throw at it. But keeping those people there is the hard part, I think. Um, I think a lot of um, a lot of games with heavy developer support will end up having a pretty big spike and being in the limelight, being reported on by the media and everything, um, get some really good shows out there, and then just kind of go away. Yeah. And I think as a competitor, like purely from my own consumer perspective, that's not what I would want in in my game. You know, we want our game to last forever. That's not what we're looking for. And so I would say that the measure we should really be thinking about is not what is the sheer number of people, but what's the growth and what's the increase decrease. Right. And I think another, uh, aside from sequels, another thing that can come into play in that regard is patches. Mm, um, that's definitely true. Because, you know, a lot of these titles, they're not so like, League, CSGO, Dota 2, Hearthstone, Overwatch. I don't think there are necessarily going to be sequels for those games. I think those are just going to be like, we're updating this over time to keep it fresh, like release DLC and to balance things. And that's another reason why Melee is so like, is so weird in this space. It's almost like a case study for what happens if you just let it ride. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's like the only one of these games that's not going to change at all. Uh, barring like some melee HD thing happening, which I, I hope it doesn't. I hope I hope it doesn't either. Uh, and we could talk about why that is exactly. But I think that something that hasn't really been floated out by those big esports is like, what if we just let things develop? There are still things that are being discovered in Melee. Like, they're small, right? They're situational. But mm-hmm. things like, things even on the level of being able to SDI out of like Fox's drill, defensive options like that, I think if you give those sorts of things time to develop in these other games, they could be enough to like mitigate the effect of things that have been patched because people viewed them as being overpowered. I do also think that melee is anomalous in that there are so many of those kinds of mechanics. That's true. Um, Because I look at like League of Legends, you just don't have so much control over your movements that you could find something new in Riven's kit 10 years after she's released, you know? Yeah. Um, But do you think it's... Go ahead. Do you think it's possible... And we've even seen this in Melee. Do you think it's possible that by like nerfing a character, you are essentially taking someone's livelihood away? Do, do you <laughs> think that that has happened in one of these games before? So there was definitely a complaint in League of Legends that the game was changing too rapidly. Um, I, I think it was Doublelift who was very vocal about this. And since the media is at Doublelift's beck and call because he's such a character, right. um, <laughs> that it got a lot of publicity. But uh, there's something to it for sure. I think with a game like League of Legends, 
that's a game where there are over a hundred characters that you can play. Yeah. And multiple roles that you can flex into like a player in that game might be called on to play a different role than they main on a team. Like they, you see all the time where they'll just start playing different positions. Imagine you took Messi and told him he had to be a goalie. Yeah. Like that's the kind of thing that happens in a MOBA. And at the end of the day, the players who are adaptable, who are capable of learning and have learned good mechanics on one champion can usually carry that over to others. Um, But there are such things as one tricks. There are people who are just supremely skilled on one character and they don't get a lot of opportunities in the space in general. Mm. So it is definitely possible that we destroyed some solo queue monster by (laughs) by doing something like that. Like I know uh, hacks, for example, in the melee community, was also a diamond one twisted fate player yeah. for a really long time. And he literally locks for twisted fate every single game. I don't know. Like at some point you, you, you would expect someone sees his name and just bans twisted fate. Right. <laughs> then what do you do? Right. Um, but like, so yes and no. Um, there are definitely, I, th- I think what's more damning is if a style of play loses its viability. Yeah. Um, if like, okay, well, you nerfed this one eighty carry, but I can move to this other eighty carry. Okay, that's one thing. But if you if you've changed the game in such a way that the eighty carry role is no longer really impactful, and your team was relying on you to carry, now you've got a problem as a team. Right. Um, and that's something that can have more of an impact. Uh, obviously, balancing a game is absurdly difficult. Um, I usually find in my experience that once a dev team has a few years of experience, um, generally their patches will do more good than harm as time goes on. Um, I think there's also a question of like, did this deserve to get people where they are in the first place? And I think that can be seen in the case of like the transition from smash four to ultimate for Bayonetta players, like a bunch of Bayonetta players have kind of dropped off of the face of top level competition because they're no longer able to play the character in the same way. Uh, And you can argue, I guess that that's a good thing. Uh, and that Bayonetta was so overpowered in Smash 4 that those players didn't deserve to be top players in the first place. But I feel like anyone who gets to a top level in a game, like I couldn't just pick up Bayonetta right now. Exactly. Yeah. Top Smash 4 player. Right. Yeah. Because there were I mean, there there were a bunch of going to make me better Mm -hmm. even because you look at like 2017 Evo Grand Finals or or was it 2018? Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it was but 2018. You got the two, two Bayonettas just charging their their move. Captain, for two minutes. Captain Zack and Lima, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there were a bunch of Bayonettas who didn't make it to that point in bracket. <laughs> you know, there were yeah. a ton of Bayonetta players who went 0-2 at that tournament, I'm sure. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, even with the best character in the game, there's still something to be said for like you you made it, you know, you, mm-hmm. you made it to the summit. <laughs> I think that a lot of the the pushback against a situation like that will come from someone who 
is playing not to have to lose rather than to try and improve it as a player. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think there's definitely a lot of negative mindset that gets pointed at characters in situations like that. Um, do I think it was better for the competitive health of the game that Bayonetta was not as dominant? Uh, let's let's bring it back even further. Do I think it was better for the the health of the video game that Meta Knight was nerfed from Brawl? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think interestingly, it seems like most Meta Knight players who were top players in Brawl like moved on to Smash Four and did pretty well. You know, mm-hmm. with the exception of maybe Mewtwo King, who was for a while considered the best Brawl player and never really reached that summit in Smash Four. Mm-hmm. But you look at Nairo, Ally. Well, Ally played Snake and Brawl, but like Nairo, Zero, those guys, you know, again, reached the top level in, in Smash 4. And I wonder if that just has to do with how, you know, good those guys are at Smash or how Meta Knight maybe prepared them more to play other characters than Bayonetta I think did. one thing to be said in that particular game might be that Brawl was a very neutral game heavy game. Yeah. Um, Whereas in Melee, there are sometimes strings that you can put together. And in 64, I mean, you get one touch and they might just die. Yeah. Uh, in Brawl, you know, it was very floaty. There wasn't a lot of follow up on your attacks. And so as soon as you did something, you, you had to be able to do it again. Um, and Meta Knight gave you a lot of tools to make that happen. But you, you still have to have the brain power to. Yeah. Him. And Bayonetta is very much not a character like that. Bayonetta was the combo heavy character in Smash 4, mm-hmm. right? It's like you push a button and then you carry your opponent to the ceiling and it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that might account for a difference there. But the point that we're getting to is simply that of what role should patches play if you want your game to last? Yeah, um, I think. Riot games, we have to look at them because they're such a juggernaut in the esports scene um, and their philosophy is going to dictate a lot of what other people try to do. And they've they seem very clearly to have decided that the best path for them is to very consistently, rigorously be making new content um, to always be like every month, a new champion or something like that. It's it's a very regular drumbeat. You can pretty much predict to within a couple of days when the next champion is going to come out because they just do it so frequently. Um, new champions, new artwork, new items, new gameplay tweaks. You know, you come into that game two seasons later after having not played it for a while, and so many things are different. The pathing that you need to take through the jungle is different. The items everyone is building are different. The, the champions that are high tier are different. Um, I've seen characters like Graves be viable and then not be viable at all and then all of a sudden come back but in a completely different role now he's a jungler (laughs) like it's just so it's always in flux and i i think about that a lot because i wonder is that good for the game it's definitely going to bring new people in to have the production value that they have but as we'll talk about later on that's not actually financially profitable um and That doesn't mean I think it's wrong because I think it's a very good thing that they do. I just wonder what the financial consequences are of that on in the long term. Mm -hmm. Um, So before we get too far into developer stuff, let's talk about a few things that um, 
because it looks like that's the way the conversation is trending right now. And there is one more topic that I want to talk about before we get there, which is um, what standards do we, the people that we control that are not related to the game itself, what standards do we need to set for ourselves before a game can potentially take off? Because we can talk about all we want about how a developer killed the community, but the community can absolutely kill itself, I think. Um, right. And so I, I just wanted to go through all of the roles. I, I've, I've broken it down to organizers, players, uh, commentators, and then content creators. Um, commentators, broadcasters, I guess, is we can be a little bit more broad because there's the streamer and there are other roles involved in all sure. of that production. But um, is there any group of people you think I missed there or do you think that's a good place to start? No, I think that makes sense. I think that's fine. So let's start with players since that encompasses the largest group of people. I'm sure everybody involved there is to some extent a player, right? Yeah. Um, unless you're like the organizer at a major and you came there for a different game, but you have to run a, another one and it's like, whatever, it's, I'm going to run this, but mm -hmm. players. Well, well, we do take that for granted, I think, in the Melee community. I think we do take for granted that most of the people who are a part of the stuff that we're, we're doing are actually players of the game and are there because they enjoy the game. I'm not sure how true that is in other communities. I think... Because uh, like literally just I think yesterday I ran an NHL 20 tournament. Yeah, I've never played that game in my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I was a player of an eSport. And the reason that I got okay. into doing what I do and the reason that I have the skills I have is that I cared enough about that eSport that I wanted to develop those skills. OK, yeah, I. There are very few organizations, I think, that don't at least love the idea of esports when they get into it. I don't it doesn't seem profitable enough to me for someone to have a pure profit motive for running these events. Yeah. If you do, I don't think that's smart as a business person. Um, now, I think there are there have been organizations that are like that. Um, I have no idea. I have no idea why, for example, I'm not going to get into specifics. Uh, <laughs> The, right. There are a couple of of groups in mind where I look at them and I'm like, why was this the the place you decided to go into business? But anyway, well, that's uh, that, that's another stream. That that's my that's my private Twitter. That I don't <laughs> have. That's uh, right. That's that's the T sis. Anyway, um, players, let's let's talk about what do our players need to be like and do or not do in order to keep the community healthy? Yeah. <sighs> So I, to start with, my the thing that I found most important when I was doing direct event organizing, like when I was the TO of a weekly event, was I felt like the players needed to create a space that felt welcoming to each other. Yeah. Um, they, they needed to be good enough as human beings. <laughs> uh, they needed to stray away from degenerate tendencies enough that somebody who they didn't know could come into their space and feel like they belonged, feel like they were not alienated, feel like even if they didn't, if even if, even if they weren't good at the game, that they could still exist there right. and be welcomed. Yeah, um, that that encompasses a lot of things being welcoming. It's not just, oh, we've got to be friendly. Cool. Like it, it's easy to write off in your mind, but there are a lot of implications of that. Um, if your community tolerates bad behavior like trash talking each other, like threatening each other, like physical violence, like I don't care how 
how manly it was when you asked the dude to step outside. That's something that's putting someone off. <laughs> um, things like uh, accusations of, you know, sexual misconduct need to be taken seriously. Um, there are a lot of things that need to be done because there is, there are groups of people who are going to feel vulnerable stepping into that space if you just let it let it all hang out. Yeah. Um, and the, you know there are people who will call me an SJW for that stance, but in my experience, the you're, the only way you're going to get diversity is if you create a space where you're allowing everybody to exist and not just some people to comfortably exist. And I think um, even aside from the principle of that, which should stand enough on its own that it should be motivating for people to do, I think it's pragmatic to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that I completely agree. Yeah, I think that allowing people who drive other people away into your space as a gaming community will do just that. It will drive a bulk of the people away because most people are on the side of being made uncomfortable by that sort of thing and not mm -hmm. on the inside of a, a gaming community that relishes in its own inner culture of exclusionary, toxic, whatever you want to call it, uh, sort of behavior. So I think that allowing that behavior in the long term is going to drive away more people than it makes feel included. This brings us back to that metric that, you know, if if the net number of players is decreasing as a result of what's going on, that's hurting the health of your community. Right. Um, and I think the thing that's hard to understand for a lot of people, because I only saw this myself as an organizer over a long period of time, mm -hmm. you're not going to notice when you turn someone away. Uh, there, there's a really strong vocal minority bias in esports communities where the people who you hear the most are the people who've, who are going to be coming back regardless. Yeah. The people who feel empowered enough to speak out and feel like they have a voice and feel like they can influence things they're not going to go away. You're not going to drive them away unless something relatively extreme happens or if they're the extreme thing that needs to be pushed away. Right. So there are so many people who are invisible from point A to point B in and out of the community. Uh, there's so many people who will be on the periphery of it, not really see what it's about, not really get involved in it, not even necessarily learn the game and who will already decide, OK, that checks this box. It's not for me. I'm gone. Yeah, um, I think even even as a person who has not been affected just in my life very much at all by the sort of behavior that would drive someone away, I think there is a point where I would just dip out, you know, as as mm. much as I enjoy it as it stands now and as much as I was enthusiastic about being involved in that community when I first got started, there's a tipping point for me, even as someone who has very little skin in the game with stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I can only imagine how many people are driven away in, in the way that you're talking about. They just see something and they are done with it. They're, they're not gonna deal with that sort of behavior. I think another thing that people fail to realize is how things have different levels of impact on different people. Um, it right. all boils, boils down to empathy at the end of the day, but like 
empathy is based on a knowledge of another person. And some people just have not had the life experience to develop this knowledge. You yeah. know, you get into esports usually at a fairly early age. Um, you're starting to put out your feelers in your school years. And um, a lot of the time, you know, kids don't have have just not seen or experienced people in such a way that they know what's really going on in their heads. But yeah. like you think about women in an esports community, for instance, you know, always across the board, an underrepresented group. Um, the best I personally have seen is the Splatoon 2 community. Um, I'm, I'm told that uh, Dead by Daylight has a really, really strong presence of women in the community. Um, but even in those communities that are kind of the gold standard, I would say at best it's maybe one, between one and eight and one and four 51 percent of the population is female what the hell is going on right yeah um so a lot of people make the, the i think bad faith argument that oh well women just need thicker skin about this but uh you you start to develop that sort of mindset that like oh well if if they can't hang in this community, then why should they be in this community? That's, mm -hmm. I think, something that is, again, just going to decrease the number of players in your community. And as such, for pragmatic reasons, you need to cut that out. Um, and so you, you take like if you go and actually look at, say, the experiences of some of the extremely brave, I must say, women who are putting out there here are the things that I'm experiencing online. Here are the things people are sending me over Netplay. Here, you know, you'll see that it's a different experience that those people have. Yeah. And if those very brave, very outspoken, angry women had not put that out there for us all to see, you as an organizer, me personally, I, that would be completely invisible to me because it's not a loud vocal minority that's a part of the community and feels like it has a voice. It's a group of people who will make dip the toe in the lightest way possible in the pool, barely create a ripple and then dash out the door before you have a chance to talk to them. Um, and you'll, they'll just be invisible. You'll, you won't see those voices. You have to be proactive about courting new audiences. You have to be proactive about making the scene more inclusive. Right. And so I think that, I mean, this now comes down to organizers. Um, and I think we can start moving towards that idea. Because um, the organizers, they're the people who really have a, a more of an ability to enforce these standards. The players, obviously, they can become organizers. I was a player first and then became an organizer basically by accident. Most most people are. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like an, a very enthusiastic player becomes an organizer. And so I think this is a natural progression that we move from player to organizer. But when sure. you make that move, um, you now have to realize that you have the ability to design the spaces, the social spaces you create for these people. Um, you have the ability to structure the interactions between them. And you have to realize that even things like the bracket format you choose mm -hmm. can have a drastic impact on how that culture develops. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, something is as simple as making sure that you have enough setups <laughs> for people to play on and that people aren't just standing around with nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, for example, in my events always tried to put a premium on how can I get people playing as much as possible? And how can I get people outside of their comfort zone? How can I get people playing with people that they wouldn't normally play with? Mm -hmm. uh, we used to do things like 
playing doubles matches where the top player was paired with the bottom seed. And you just worked your way inward from there because that created relationships between the strongest players and the weakest players. It created an incentive for the strongest players to help the weakest players out. Those were the kinds of side events and things that I tried to run. Um, Obviously, you know, keeping things fresh and uh, trying to give people a different experience each time. That was a goal of mine just to keep people coming back. But it was also certainly designed in part so that you tried to develop a mentor relationship between top players and lower level players, Mm -hmm. because that's the sort of thing that keeps them coming back. I came into the scene and immediately I was friends with Ty. I got introduced very quickly to Taj and Wobbles and Axe. And like all of those players, newbie by name, were invested in my improvement like with an all-star cast like that, how how am I not going to become an organizer? How am I going to not yeah. want to give back to the scene? Yeah. Um, if you can establish those connections in some way, you've succeeded as an organizer, I think. Um, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, you, you don't see as much of, say, Taj anymore in the scene. But his work in the scene was still influential in k- keeping the scene alive. Um, I, I try to carry on the legacy of things that he taught me and Ty does as well. And all of these other people look up to him and value what he did for us. So as a player, you can impact the organizers and vice versa. You know, it's it's all a community effort at the end. But we're making these divisions to kind of give an idea of what everyone can do about it. Right. What do you think on the, the broadcasting and content creation side? Because I think you have a lot more experience in that regard, having been a commentator at Nationals, having worked with some of the the higher end groups. What's something that you think they can do to establish higher community standards? I think that... The Crimson Blur put this in a very sort of simple but eloquent way, which is that if you give Melee a stage, it will always deliver like 100% of the time. And I think part of that in large part, at least for me as someone who watches broadcasts, is because of people like Scar and Toph, uh, people who tell great stories Uh, about the games, people who take you with them in the moment uh, and have this just like brimming enthusiasm and talk about the game in a way that makes you uh, excited about it. And I think that kind of it is an intangible factor, right? Like if you talk about the the core elements to having an esports community that lasts for a really long time, I think the intangible element of it is making a game that people love. Right. (laughs) I think that's the hard part. That's that really is the most difficult part about it. All of this stuff, there's a blueprint for uh, aside from that, really. Mm. And I think at their best, commentators and content creators are capturing that spirit and delivering it to people. And, you know, it's it's not just the fact that Melee has good people working in it has a community of players who are enthusiastic about it, has lab monsters who have been discovering things about the game that are absolutely insane and mind-boggling. Maybe that's something we should add, the lab monsters. The lab monsters, yeah, that's huge. And we love that. But would people know about the lab monsters if Toph wasn't talking about it on the mic? If there weren't people to be stoked on the work that the lab monsters were doing? Probably not. So I think that I think that commentators and content creators are largely responsible for 
conveying the story of the game that we all love and and showing the tangible work that people do in a light that makes other people excited by that work and by the game itself. It's a really good that's really good input on that. It makes me think of it in a different way, too, Um, because there was a a conversation that I was having on Twitter the other day about Splatoon commentary, Mm -hmm. um, because there are some phenomenal Splatoon commentators like, you know, if if Nintendo is hiring you, I'm talking about nine. I'm talking about Milana here. Yeah. You know, if Nintendo is hiring you, you're doing something right. Right. (laughs) And um, Eric is also phenomenal. K-Bot is phenomenal when he gets a chance to put down his TOing mic and pick up his commentary (laughs) mic. Right. Um, You know, there are so many good names in that community. Um, but there, it also gets a lot of flack for lower level commentators. There's also a lot of criticism put towards them, um, for, and usually the, the, the criticism that you get from them is not, um, there are usually two, the, the less important one, the more secondary one is usually, oh, these players aren't really knowledgeable about the game. Yeah. I feel like that's leveled at every commentator ever. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's a single commentator who has not been told that at some point in time. The only one's probably Drug Fox that I can think of. Yeah, if if you're criticizing Drug Fox, you'd better be. (laughs) I don't even know who you'd better be. (laughs) Right, yeah. Who, who, Plup, maybe? (laughs) I don't even know. I don't know. Anyway, so he's an anomalous case. Like, man's a genius (laughs) and has the respect of everybody. He's nuts. um, You know, the vast majority of people are going to be criticized. If you're spending your time at that tournament, let's put it this way. If you're spending your time at that tournament commentating instead of playing really hard to become a top player, like, you know, like a commentator necessarily has to do in order to commentate. Yeah. You're going to get a little bit less experience that way. And that can make a difference for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, The the job of organizing, the job of commentating does take away from some of that time that you would normally have to practice. So um, I, I think that that is sort of a necessary sacrifice in some places. But the second, the more important complaint that you always hear besides they're not knowledgeable is always they don't seem interested. It's not that they are boring me. It's that they are not interested and therefore they're not making me feel interested. Right. Yeah. If that's the the most common complaint, then it's antithesis. You know, these people make me excited to play the game. That's really what the goal is. And that ties back to our goal. Are you, by your actions, increasing the number of people who play this game? Yeah. Definitely. And I imagine the same goes for content creators, too. Like you look at, say, Alpha Rad, um, <laughs> top ultimate content creator, and all, his basic motivation for building all of that content is just, I wanted to play games with some friends and I thought it was fun and I thought some other people would like watching. That's that's kind of what it all boils down to for him. Yeah. Um, and a lot of his following just kind of came from that. That's a perfect way to do content creation. Um, people get caught up a lot, I think, on on experts sharing their opinions to get you better at the game. You know, um, let's let's make you make you improve. Um, you get a lot of content like that from, say, uh, that SRB2 dude from Splatoon. Um, you get a lot of that kind of content from, say, hacks in Smash Melee. But I think at the end of the day, the enthusiasm still has to come through in order for that to be a viable option. I think that the the first and most important piece of any content creation is bringing other people into the community. I think I think there's a reason why, like, John Boyce is the most well, maybe not the most, but like one of the most popular sports content creators right now. 
And it's because people like to hear the story, you know, mm-hmm. his his stuff is very stats driven. Actually, if you look at the core of what it is, that's, you know, that's chart party is the name of one of the shows. <laughs> you right. know, it's it's way more stats than anything else. <laughs> yeah. But like he's just so compelling in the way that he like weaves those stats into a narrative. It's if you, if you haven't seen John Boyce, I think. Even if you're not a sports fan, you're an esports fan. You should check it out. It's it's go watch 222 to zero. Yeah, it's a surrealist masterpiece. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tons um, of great stuff. Yeah, it, he takes statistics and makes a story out of them. Which, I mean, I think that people definitely need to understand that that's possible. I think there are a lot of like political perspectives that are uninformed by that. And that scares me. But going back to the esports concept here content i think is all about community building it is your you're using the internet as outreach to find people who might be interested people who are peripherally interested and get them to interested in joining an esports event yeah and i think that really is that's where it starts for like everyone pretty mm -hmm. much Everyone's like first step in joining an esports community is probably a YouTube search, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. I got started back in 2005 when my friends found a set of Ken versus Azin doing Marth Dittos on FD. I think it was five stocks. I don't think they had the, the official rule set nailed down yet even. Yeah. But they found that video because we had been playing the game and, you know, casually. But we're not going to develop an esports scene out of just us there. We develop. I developed into the esports scene while my friends didn't because I found that one YouTube video and I was like, I'm pretty good amongst all of my friends. I want to go and try and become better. I want to go and show off at a tournament. And then I went and got bodied and was like, oh, yeah, I see. I see this. <laughs> Which I All right. I guess in a way that leads back to the grassroots versus esports way of doing things, because mm-hmm. I don't think that opportunity exists as concretely in a lot of the top down esports that exist. Would you agree? Do you think that like the link is is as strong in those games as it is in, say, Smash, where you like you can watch a YouTube video and then get immersed in the competitive community. I do think my, my biggest point of reference for this is League of Legends. Um, League of Legends, I really started off hearing about the game from friends. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have the same experience. Um, part of it was that, you know, because they have the marketing budget to throw behind it they're able to create buzz and that buzz yeah. i think it was probably what's got me sold on the game sold i've i've still never paid a cent to them for it uh <laughs> but it, it is a, a free game from yeah perspective of those who don't have it like it, it's a it's free to play it's not pay to win all you can buy are skins um so i've resisted that pull for seven seasons anyway <laughs> Right. The the thing, though, that makes me think that it could still be possible is that, oh, shoot, what was that guy's tag? Um, so there, there were a bunch of YouTubers. Dunkey was not the first that I found. I think I f- found uh, him through someone that he would claim was his imitator. Uh, but I found a bunch of YouTubers. Um, nowadays, there's still like Lily Pichu. There's Magikarp used Fly. There's a bunch of people who are really big in in streaming and content creation spaces that are still playing League of Legends. Um, You still see Pokemon playing it to this day. Um, And 
I think that those people, you know, again, their content is not super game focused. Yeah. The game is the the medium through which they're interacting with their friends. And you're you're basically sitting in on a more real reality TV show by watching them play together. Um, you're, you're watching them crack jokes and be, you know, improv comedians together mm-hmm. um, in the game. But you see that and you go, I want that experience for myself. And you pick up the game. And that's kind of how I was with League of Legends at first. Like I wanted to learn League of Legends specifically because I was going to college in a state that I didn't live in. And I wanted to be able to make friends quickly. And having four teammates on my team who would depend on me in a competitive context felt like a great way to be able to make some friends and didn't end up working out that way. But that was what got me into the game. And I'm still here seven seasons later, you know? Right. Um, So parsing out, you know, what of that was grassroots and what of that was esports, the the game being more ubiquitous, at least at first, was something that was definitely straight up esports. Like (laughs) when I got into Melee, I had to drive 45 minutes away to a community college where there were, I think, 12 people in the bracket. And like the 25 was, I think, the most that ever happened at that tournament. I had to drive so far away. My like it, it's the situation that worries parents. Like I remember the story that Ty tells about his first melee tournament where he took a like a four hour bus ride. And then he, the f- like 14 year old, is hanging out with a bunch of like 20 somethings. <laughs> and yep. The, the, they they talked about it later. Like, why did your parents let you do that? <laughs> so that like that is that kind of first experience in, in a competitive setting with the game is way different, I think, between a grassroots and an esports mentality. Uh, just so we're clear, I mean, grassroots is a word that I'm sure people know, but um, esports. When we say that in this context, grassroots versus esports as a dichotomy, we're referring to esports being a game that has a lot of developer support and is largely pushed and maintained as a competitive scene by the developer. If it's a grassroots scene, that means that the developer is not providing the competitive infrastructure. They're not the ones running the tournaments. They're not the ones providing the organizers of the competitive rule sets. They're not the ones hiring the talent. It's just that a community that is passionate about the game has arisen around that, and they want to push the game themselves. Uh, and the lines get blurred a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, while Melee is quintessential grassroots, I think, um, that just the minimum amount of developer support that I've ever seen for a competitive competitive game. You also get, say, like an indie developer where, sure, they might be in full support and putting their whole life behind developing the game's esports scene, but they're just not as well off as Riot Games or Blizzard, who are you know getting money from Tencent, who <laughs> um, who can push professional marketing budgets, who can buy literally the best animators on the damn planet to <laughs> put together the League of Legends cinematics. Like I'm God, those are so good. And like, how is Skullgirls going to do that? <laughs> how are how are right. how is anybody going to put t- together that strong of an advertisement um how is anyone going to develop the lcs for an indie game um you just can't do that so that's where the the, the distinction comes from uh usually it's very clear to see which game falls in which category um even though it is a spectrum yeah and i think again melee is an anomaly in that your experience of having like four of maybe the top 200 melee players of all time at your disposal is incredibly unique to that sort of community. I wonder what it would take for a game with developer support to encourage 
their figureheads like that to just go to like a local land tournament, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be to be there for something like that. It's it's one of the paradoxes of, of the growth of the community. Um, and this is one thing that makes me hesitate to use the metric of are, are you increasing in number as you go? Because on the one hand, I definitely think that even a community like Melee, even those in those dark ages that were where the community was so small, I think they could have easily doubled the number of players that were there if the community had been more inclusive. Um, mm-hmm. But it does get to a point where if your community grows enough, your players start to become celebrities, your top players. Um, back when you know I was getting into it, you could just sit down with Kells, with Dart, with Axe, with, you know, these are all people that I played with um, back when I was an absolute scrub, when I was a nobody, because I was somebody just by being there. There were just not enough people. They had to value every single person and they had to foster the tiny bit of engagement that they did have so that they wouldn't lose it. Um, I think that having a small community like that really incentivizes top players to invest in the lower level players. And that yeah. was something that I thought was beautiful about it. That, uh, you know, th- those early days of the, the ASU weeklies where Wobbles would just sit down and talk mindset, talk mentality with people and help them become better people. That was one of the most beautiful things I've ever fostered. But yeah. that was in a room with 10 people tops. Um, as soon as you get a hundred people, it's not a, it's not a therapy session anymore. You know, you've got too many people in the room. Like this is a crowd event and there's definitely some momentum to that. Like you go to, you go to Evo and you stand in the crowd there. You you can't describe it except that you get this mob mentality, but the mob mentality is positive. The mob mentality is driving you towards enjoying something harder than you've ever enjoyed it before. It's, it's so cool and so powerful. Um, Yeah. But if that's all you have if you don't have the foundation that establishes that love in a healthy context in the beginning like i i think that melee benefited from starting small and then getting big um and the thing is that it didn't even start small right like because it was so it's uh, smash is almost like league of legends and that is it is ubiquitous but it's ubiquitous because people play it Um, i feel like it's ubiquitous casually for sure right i feel like that's competitive level you know, yeah, that, that is a good point. That's the thing, right? Like, I think in order for something to be, you know, because people will talk about esports and its potential to be as popular as like football, you know, they'll mm-hmm. they'll jump to that comparison, you know, in venture capital meetings, I'm sure, <laughs> like all the time they'll they'll talk about it. Um, that doesn't happen unless a game is very widely played by people in their homes with their friends. You know, I, at least I, at least I don't think it can happen unless that is the case, unless it's like you going over to your friend's house to play basketball with them in their front yard. Yeah. And I think something yeah. that sports have definitely gotten right that esports haven't yet is, and you know, this is largely why we're stepping into the business that we are. It's that uh, that entry to the higher level competition. Yeah. Um, esports has always been focused on the top players, on the elite, on the LCS teams, on the RLCS teams, on, you know, the top players in Smash, the, the, their personalities. But there's so much less thought that is put into the infrastructure at the lower levels of play. Um, baseball has a little league. They've had that for so long. It's the way that you get into baseball. Yeah. 
and um, and I recreational guess, soccer leagues, recreational basketball leagues, YMCA's. And I guess that would bring us to the point of like, why would developers be interested in that? Like, why why are developers interested in creating an esports community for their game? You know, and, and in being involved in stuff like that. What is what does it get for them? So, obviously, the goal for them from a business perspective is to sell more product. Um, I say that, but then I second guess it because I think about how Riot Games doesn't turn a profit, but they're, you know, rather than saying, oh, we're not being profitable, excuse me, rather than saying we're not being profitable, they turn around and get A-list musicians and A-list animators to put together these beautiful cinematics that they put out. Um, They go and create the highest production value uh, viewing experience for their games. They sell out soccer stadiums. They do things that make it seem like they have more money to throw behind it than they do. And I have to wonder, like, is that sort of that grassroots spirit of we just want our game to be cool rather than we want to make money off our game? That's something that gives me a little bit of hope. There are a lot of things about Riot Games that do not give me a lot of hope. But that's one of the things that does make me feel a little bit better about it. Um, it, I also think about um, there was a a really quick video clip I saw once of the shoot. I think it was a guy who worked for Tempo Storm, question mark. Um, No, it was CLG, CLG. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone was asking him, hey, why do you guys have melee players? And he goes and they're like, you can't be like profiting off of that. Right. That's that's not an investment that's paying off, is it? And he goes. Nah, it's not, but they're cool to have. That was basically his thought about it. Like, I think that at a certain point, if you get big enough, if you have enough money to throw at it, maybe you do stop caring about the money itself and you start caring about, can I make something cool with this money that I am now making? Can I reinvest this? Can I get the experience going in some cyclical, healthy fashion mm-hmm. that will help the game survive forever or at least create something cool while it's still here? Right. I, so that, that's something that's in the back of my head. But yeah, I, I do think it's kind of tenuous to rely on like companies to do that. But I think there is something to be said for like hosting tournaments, you know, <laughs> like I I think there's sort of a resistance from I don't know. It's it's almost like big developers think that like grassroots tournaments are too small for them to be involved in. And maybe there is a space for like people like us to come in and fill in those gaps you know but like what's wrong with having a tournament like in a hotel ballroom (laughs) you know what what's wrong with having a tournament in a gym (laughs) you know there's Mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways that you can be reaching out to people and putting like marketing effort behind things that are going on on a ground level that you know maybe that again maybe that's like too small for for those companies to be reaching into. But I think there is room for growth in those spaces. And, Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately, I think that will only help the top level. Like, I don't know, like to me, as somebody who's like never really played League of Legends before, I have like very little desire to watch it. (laughs) You know, I, 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 it's like somebody who knows nothing about baseball has very little desire to watch a baseball game. Uh, And I think part of that is uh, is incumbent upon the sport to be reaching out to those people and making 
that sort of thing known. And baseball has a huge problem in that its average fan is just getting increasingly older. Young people are not getting into baseball uh, because they're not being reached out to. And it's a pretty hard to understand game that is very complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of it things requires to keep a track very of. specific field and resources to play. Yes. With. Yeah. And the rules are are not easy to understand at first. Uh, and I think some esports are also going to run into that problem. Like they aren't necessarily reaching out into they're, they're they're grasping at like a limited amount of players. I feel they're not reaching out into spaces to educate people about their game and to get them involved in grassroots ways uh, to bring them up sort of to the to the level where they're interested in the competitive uh, aspect of those games on a high level. Mm -hmm. I think about like, on the one hand, you know, through so many indirect ways, yes, the the tournaments are increasing attendance and everything. I just, it's just, it seems like it would be so hard to convince a, a marketing team, let's say that there's enough ROI, enough return on investment there, that it would be worthwhile for them to pick any one individual event like yeah what happens well, if we mm -hmm. book this hotel ballroom and only 50 people show up yeah <laughs> that makes sense and, and i think that the more i think about it the more this sounds like this sounds like top level organizations partnering with lower level organizations so like if you look at sort of the little league analog in basketball it's like the junior nba essentially which is run through ymcas uh, YMCA's are the venue and they are the organizing body, if you will, behind the junior NBA. But the NBA puts its name on it as marketing. Like it will give you a junior son's jersey. I have junior son's jerseys from when I was in middle school. Uh, That's sick. So that sort of outreach, I think, is is what I'm talking about. So like Nintendo for example, we'll see like the very biggest smash tournaments and they will do whatever sort of backroom deal happens and they'll have their logo on the stream. But Nintendo is not providing any support for where they could actually be reaching new people. Right. If you're watching, if you're watching Genesis, you might be watching it as your first time watching a smash event. But chances are this is just the biggest event for people who are already part of the Smash community to congregate around and watch. I do think that with the very biggest tournaments, there is actually a lot of new viewership there. Like I think about Evo, like a lot of people Evo, get into a game from watching it at Evo. I, I think that Evo is different in that it is a it's like a multi-game thing, right? So you might get some crossover in terms of people watching it for Street Fighter, having known it as a fighting game community tournament. Uh, and they'll, you know, see Smash and and be interested in it. Maybe that's not necessarily true for Melee because there are not a, a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of crossover between Melee and the rest of the FGC. Um, what we can definitely say is that there isn't really a lower level league or anything like that um, on a scale large enough that it's Nintendo's not going to advertise that. Right? It's not cohesive, right? And it there's could so have much been. interest. There's so much demand. It could have been with the Smash World Tour, right? Like finally, somebody took the leap and and put up prize money for a circuit type uh, organization of events. And then we have coronavirus, of course. So we'll never really know how that panned out. Um, 
But that pandemic doubt. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. But it could happen on like an institutional level. And maybe this is a bit self-serving as as talking as a representative of a business who uh, is running esports events. But uh, something like the partnership between the YMCA and the Junior Sons, where it's like, hey, we like the work that you're doing. We're going to put some marketing dollars behind that because we feel it will help the top level of our competition. It will get more people interested in the NBA by virtue of reaching out into these youth sports leagues. Yeah, I think it's the long term that a lot of the the game devs don't really go for that that causes the game to peter out. Yeah, it, it might be that they see, you know, oh, these other games, their their lifespan usually is X number of years. And at, at that point, it's starting to decline and another game has picked up its its place. But like, I think that's backwards. I think it's that because there was no long term investment put in getting new players into the game. That as soon as your top players who everybody knows, your household names move on to something else, there's nobody to step up and take their place anymore. And it's, and it's done. Right. So anyway, um, so we've talked a little bit about why a developer might want this esports scene. But l- let's take a look at Nintendo for a second. I think that their position, not not only are we uniquely you know, positioned to talk about it from our experiences, but... I think they are also an anomaly somewhat in regard to companies that have developed esports games. Yeah. They they from the beginning have seemed very solidly focused on the casual market. I think that you know the the epitome of this is the the Nintendo Wii and the e, the Wii Sports uh era, I guess, you know, this enormously high-selling game like absurdly they made so much money <laughs> off of the Wii and Wii Sports is, you know, granted they were giving it away with the Wii, but that kind of sold the the title. I mean, that's kind of sold the console. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That basically a tech demo is a game. And that game was not competitive in the slightest. That game was one of the most casual experiences of all time. You know, you had a grandmothers that were able to play this Wii bowling and enjoy it. Um, and it got new people into the, into video games as a whole. Like, that seems, from a business perspective, like the untapped market rather than the elite esports games where you could talk about all of these different companies that are making all of these different titles that all have the same style of jersey, you know, yeah. that all have a lot of the very oddly similar. I feel like the market is more um, is more saturated in terms of esports titles rather than titles that are designed to be multiplayer but casual. I agree. But I think that that on a personal level is frustrating to me. I think that (laughs) part of me thinks that if you're not playing melee, you are (laughs) like playing casual games as a coping mechanism for you not being good at melee. (laughs) Essentially, (laughs) I think that I in some place have that perception of people like and it could be smash also i i just think that like this is the game of games and you are not playing it because you are afraid to lose and i can make you not afraid to lose if we have a conversation about it (laughs) and so i think part of me is like you can reach into a casual audience and make them play a competitive game but as a developer, obviously, you just can't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But on on a societal level, 
<laughs> I think like if you're not playing competitive Smash, to me, it's that you're avoiding it because you are afraid to lose. <laughs> I think there's no other reason why you shouldn't be playing this game where Mario can punch Pac-Man. There's <laughs> there's no other reason that exists. I have so many thoughts about that. Oh, my God. Because um, <laughs> I think something high level, something competitive, it, it is a very rewarding experience. It teaches you a lot about yourself. And for me, the draw to Melee has always been self-expression. It's always mm -hmm. been that... This is the game that gives me the most tools to move around that I have ever seen in any game. Yeah. This is the game that lets me do these crazy fake outs. This is the game that lets me basically bend the character on screen to my will. They are responsive to what my mind wants to make them do. It's not that way at first. Yeah. <laughs> you do not get there after a short amount of time. And to be fair to me, that is the number one complaint of people who are involved in a competitive game and have knowledge of competitive melee, but are not involved in the melee community. They say it's too hard and I will never be able to master it. When in reality, all of this is here for you. There are so many resources. And, and a lot of times when people say that, I'm just like, okay, you're, you're right, fine. You're right for thinking that, but they're not right. <laughs> I'm having this kind of a conversation in my own head right now, trying to learn Dota right now, um, because I play League of Legends, OK, except for a couple of champions that came out very recently and that I still have yet to quite grasp. Literally every champion in that game, I can tell you what their Q, W, E and R do <laughs> like. Yeah, that's an insane amount of knowledge. There are over a hundred of those characters that like, it's like having the entire move list of a Smash game memorized. But now I'm mm -hmm. getting into Dota and I'm like, oh God, I've got to learn all of this all over again. Yeah, uh, the, like, there is probably an amount of that, yeah. that I want in my life. <laughs> there is probably a certain point. Maybe maybe I'll make an exception for people who are like through college, right? <laughs> for people who don't have who don't have expendable time that they could be using uh, who have to work like 40 hours a week or something. Maybe maybe there's an exception that can be made for that. Like, I think that there there should be a game like that for everyone. I, I think that everyone deserves the experience to get that good at something. Maybe it's not a game. Maybe it's a creative endeavor. Maybe you don't want to be like necessarily as competitive, but some artistic expression. Um, maybe maybe it's a different kind of game. Maybe you're playing chess. Um, maybe you're a go player. Maybe you're, you know, a race car driver. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think that everyone should at least have a, comp a competitive is it competitive for me because to, to me, I, again, I said it was self-expression and I just compared it to art. Is it just that someone everyone needs a creative outlet? Is it I, am I just saying that everyone needs a hobby? It might be true. And and there are so many options to pick. Like I could accept the argument that like I don't want to play competitive melee because I think that Dota is sick and I would like to spend more energy on that. Or the thing I'm thinking is like, yeah, does it need are those things not innately competitive? Like in art, I mean, obviously what you create is your own self, is your own expression. But also if you're going to make it professionally, like that's that's hard. That's cutthroat. Yeah. Um, and everyone's always being so self-critical. Everyone's always being like the most magnificent artists that you know have probably looked at every single piece of work they've ever done and gone, oh, that's shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's like 
the same impulse that makes someone drop out of film school and get like a an economics degree or something. You know, it's like I I don't I don't buy into myself enough to uh, to want to pursue this, which is understandable, I guess. But the opportunity cost is not very high for just going to a couple of tournaments a week. I'm telling you, you could do this. and You should do this for me as a personal favor just to see if it's fun. If you're watching this out there. Definitely. Like if if you enjoy video games, I think the experience of trying to take one a little bit more seriously, a little bit more competitively is something that will teach you a lot about yourself that will give you skills, coping mechanisms for real life. Um, and it will make you feel cool. It will make you feel like a god that you can make your inkling roll around the corner that way that you can move your character across the yeah. screen that way that you can hit that combo like having the ability to control something precisely and consistently like that that's a really empowering feeling and that's something that i would want anyone to have to yeah. feel like at least in some arena in some medium i can do something that is really freaking cool and there's an interesting and maybe dangerous idea from, and I think we've talked about this before. Uh, Sleepy K, who made a video called Why Do You Lie About Wanting to Be Good at Super Smash Bros. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube? And his core thesis was that if you are a competitive player of a game, your ultimate goal should be to be the best player in the world at that game. Because if you get to a level where you can do a super cool thing, like, are you going to stop there? Like, My answer to that it, is yes. I think the answer is it could be yes also, uh, because I think that as long as you well, I think that your answer could be that you don't necessarily want to be good, but you want to like find something right. You want to find something that makes you feel good or that brings you a connection with people. And you don't necessarily have to be in a competitive gaming community because you want to be good at the game either. You could be in it for a different reason. You could be in it because you want to see that community grow and you could be in it because you want to bring other people into that experience to be friends with you, <laughs> essentially. There are definitely organizers who aren't really players of the game that much. Yeah. Um, like I think of a notable example, Stephen Shackelford of SAK Gaming doesn't actually play Super Smash Brothers that often. Yeah. Um, but he's more invested in the Smash community than anybody I've ever met. Yeah, I think I would go that far. He, like that is his livelihood. And those grinders are his family. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I think that's a real family. Yes. And I think that's why I say, like, don't maybe not necessarily like make your goal to be on an LCS team or make your goal to be a top 100 melee player or or any of that. I the first step that anyone can take and that I think is a good experience for anyone to have who is interested in video games is to go to a tournament mm -hmm. is to go. And the thing that makes me sad is that for some games, you can't really do that very easily. You can't have that. Ex I, w I want as many people as possible to have that experience. That's like why I do this. I, I want uh, as many people as possible to have the experience of, of going to a tournament to have the experience that was so positive for me. And that's that's the problem with esports, Jeff. That's the problem with that approach to things is that they can't reach there. They won't reach there. But somebody has to because this is this is an experience that is worth nothing if it is not shared, in my opinion. Well, maybe for some people. For me, it's worth nothing if it's not shared. And so I think that we need to 
share it with as many people as possible. Riot, hit my line. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it happen. But that's my that's my take on how, how to make your esports game last forever. You reach out to people in some way. I'm not saying that Riot has to go into your school gymnasium personally and organize a tournament there. I'm saying that Riot needs to to reach out to you and say, hey, are you doing OK? What do you need from us? <laughs> you need you need more people at your school gymnasium. Yeah, there's a way for us to help with that. And so a company who's taking that step to say we want to create this experience for people, first of all, I mean, I, as a you know, if I'm the company owner and I'm able to create that, that feels fulfilling to me. That is something that I am willing to spend my money on. Um, do you think that a more cold, pragmatic perspective will see that and think that that is worthwhile? Or do you think that we are counting on a developer to decide that they want to do what they can to unlock the fullest human potential of their work. I think that we're counting on them to make a long term consideration and that's it. And I don't think that's unreasonable. It might so be for some this will pay off financially in the long term if they stick to it. I I think so. I think absolutely. There's no other way that you're going to fill an Overwatch League arena. There's no other way. It's a money pit otherwise. I'm sorry, Blizzard, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's. That's that's my opinion on it. It's it's a money pit if you don't build the sort of grassroots communities that sports have, mm-hmm. because minor league sports teams, you know, face the same issues like they they can't fill arenas. It's like, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. And the, those sports had the opportunity to build up that following over the decades or even centuries that they've been around before they were ever monetized. So I think that's one thing they have going for them. That yes. They were the games people were already playing. Yes. And the concern that I have in esports, the, the number one concern that I think everything comes back to is that at the end of the day, a video game is a product. Like yes. Nobody, nobody sells baseball per se. Um, there are people who sell the equipment and the component parts and the organization and all of that for it and the production. But at the end of the day, the game of baseball is very open source. Um, and it's only developed the way that it has because people have decided to play it that way. Whereas video games are coded by a specific team that expects to be compensated for their troubles. They expect to continue to be able to make money off it. And there is always new competition because a game developing studio needs to constantly be developing more games. So I disagree. I'm saying that if you are serious in your venture capital meetings about making esports into football, you need to play it fast and loose like that. You need to play it fast and loose where people can use the game in a community way without restriction. And you need to be investing in those sorts of programs. I worry that there will end up being so many games that are being invested in that way that, yes, the ones who do reach the top, you know, the ones at the top of the esports earning dot net or whatever it is, um, those games will absolutely benefit from that kind of support. But I worry that the risk for the games that don't end up making it is just too catastrophic and that a lot of dev studios go under from that kind of effort. That's capitalism, baby. I would rather have 
I would rather have the games that rise to the top than the developer studios that produce the games that don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying right now that I'm willing to risk it so that we can have a game rise to the top. I think that that is I mean, obviously, that's a very pro consumer perspective to have on it. And I just wonder what a game developer would be saying if they were on the, the and, podcast here with us. Yeah. And listen, I think it could be a game that exists now. I think it could be Rocket League. I I see very little reason why Rocket League couldn't do something like this and be successful mm-hmm. with it. Aside from the fact that like you're counting on people to you're counting on yourself to be able to get people engaged. That's the big gamble here, I think. And that doesn't always work. But if it does. Mm. chef's kiss so glorious so glorious will the victory be i'm telling you yeah i think there is definitely something to be said if the developer you know if the investor has the means to be doing this um i think there is something to be said for putting your all behind a project and trying to push it out regardless of early success and just saying i think this is good enough i want the world to see this i want this to become the next big thing Um, and putting it all out there. I think if you're willing to put that kind of love behind your project, even if it ends up not succeeding financially, that you're doing what's probably best for yourself, for your self-actualization, for your fulfillment. So, yeah. All right. I think there's something to be said for that. We got to wrap this up here. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. been an hour and a half. (laughs) So, yep. Yeah, I think it's hard. It's challenging, right? But I think... I think there are ways to make it happen. And I think someday we're going to get there as as the esports community. We're going to we're going to have a glorious moment where people just come together to play the game, whatever the game is, whatever the games are. You know, mm-hmm. I think if enough people are willing to go down with the ship, that the ship won't go down. There you go. <laughs> that's that's how it is. Uh, all right. So what do we got going on? uh here oh if you're watching this uh before june 1st we are running a giveaway uh the giveaway is through gleam i'll I'll post a link in the description uh of the youtube video you can type if anyone's in twitch chat right now you can type exclamation point giveaway to check that out uh we're going to be giving away a hyperx cloud stinger headset to one of you lovely folks who uh just does us a favor throws us a follow on twitter (laughs) Something of that sort. There's a bunch of ways that you can earn entries, so check that out. Um, I think uh, the next couple of days we've got tournaments, so stay tuned to the Twitch channels for those. Uh, And aside from that, go to Bravest.com as always. Follow us on Twitch. Follow us on Twitter. Everything's Bravest Esports. Um, And uh, that's about it for this week, I think. Thanks so much for watching, everybody. Appreciate the support. Yeah, watching or listening, I suppose, because this is a podcast. I get to, yeah, we're podcasters. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> All right. See. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to the to the pantheon. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. See you, everybody. <laughs>